Welcome back to Beth and our study of the book of Yehoshua or Joshua. Um, just, just as a word of warning, both David and I, David's in the room here with me as he always is, we both have a bit of a cough, so you'll forgive us if we start hacking up along here or there. Um, and also, I, I didn't realize this connection, but uh, um, I didn't uh, intend to do this, but I'm kind of dressed in my fatigues. Um, which is appropriate since we're going to be talking about a battle. Um, but, you know, um, we, we don't think about these things that deeply when we record them. Uh, but so it is. So it is. Okay, so this week we are in Chapter 8. Uh, and after a humiliating defeat at Ai in dealing with Achan's sin, Joshua regroups and organizes a second successful attack according to God's plan and pattern. Then we're reminded of God's covenantal relationship with Israel, which was the core of the victory over Jericho. Okay, so Joshua chapter 8, let's go ahead, open our Bible, and dive in. And again, this week I'll be reading from the Tree of Life version. Joshua 8. Excuse me. (laughs) Then Adonai said to Joshua, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Take all of the people of war with you and arise, go up to Ai. Behold, I have given the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land into your hand. Then you will do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except you will take its spoils and its cattle as booty for yourselves. Set an ambush for the city behind it. So Joshua and all the people of war arose to go up to Ai. Joshua selected 30,000 men valiant warriors, and sent them at night. He commanded them, saying, Look, you are going to ambush the city from behind it. Don't go too far from the city, but all of you be ready. Then I and all the troops with me will approach the city. Then it will be when you come out against us, like the first time, that you will flee before them. So they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will think, They are fleeing before us like the first time. While we are fleeing before them, you will rise up from the ambush and take possession of the city, for Adonai your God will give it into your hand. Now when you've seized the city, you will set the city on fire, according to the word of Adonai you must do, so that you do as I have ordered you. So Joshua sent them off, and they went to the ambush site, taking uh, position between Beit El and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Then Joshua arose up early in the morning and mustered the people. He and the elders of Israel marched before the people to Ai. All the people of war were, went uh, with him went up, advanced, and came in front of the city. They camped to the north of Ai, with a valley between him and Ai. But he had taken about 5,000 men and sent them in ambush between Beit El and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the people, the main army that was to the north of the city, and its rear guard to the west of the city. Then Joshua walked that night in the midst of the valley. So it came to pass, when the king of Ai saw this, the men of the city hurried and rose up early and went out to meet Israel in battle, he and all his people at the appointed place facing the Arabah. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. 
So Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled by the way of the wilderness. Then all the people who were in Ai were summoned to pursue them. So they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. So they left the city open as they chased after Israel. Then Adonai said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. So Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. As soon as he stretched out his hand, the ambush arose quickly from their place, ran and entered the city and captured it, and immediately set the city on fire. Now the men of Ai looked back and saw, behold, the smoke of the city rising up to the sky. They had no place to flee this way or that, since the people who had been fleeing to the wilderness turned back upon the pursuers. When Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city rose up, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. The others also came out of the city against them, so they were surrounded by Israel, some on this side and some on that side. They struck them down until not one survivor or fugitive was left. But they captured the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua. After Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the field, in the wilderness, where they pursued them, and all of them were fallen by the edge of the sword until they were consumed, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. All who fell that day, both men and women, were twelve thousand, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Only the cattle and the spoil of that city Israel took as their booty, according to the word of Adonai, which he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burnt Ai and made it a permanent heap of desolation to this day. Then he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. At sunset, Joshua commanded that they take his carcass down from the tree, cast it at the entrance of the gate of the city, and piled over it a great heap of stones, which remains to this day. Then Joshua built an altar to Adonai, God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, as Moses the servant of Adonai had commanded B'nai Yisrael, as written in the scroll of the Torah of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no man had wielded an iron tool. They offered on it burnt offerings to Adonai and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There on the stones he wrote a copy of the Torah of Moses, which he had written in the presence of B'nai Yisrael. Then all Israel, with their elders and officials and their judges, were standing on both sides of the ark facing the Levitical Kohanim, carrying the ark of the covenant of Adonai, the outsider as well as the native-born. Half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal just as Moses the servant of Adonai had commanded before, in order to bless the people of Israel. Then afterward he read all the words of the Torah, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the Torah. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, including the men and the little ones and the outsiders walking among them. Okay, Joshua 8. Let's get right into it. It's going back to verse 1. Then Adonai said to Joshua, Do not be afraid or dismayed, 
Take all the people of war with you and arise, go up to Ai. Behold, I have given the king of Ai, his people, his city and his land into your hand. Do not be afraid or dismayed. God is reassuring Joshua here that his assistance is still present, even though this battle will be won by purely military means. Um, That is, no open miracles are going to be present here as they were at Jericho. And that this is not a sign of God removing his help or, or, or removing his hand, okay? At Jericho, Israel was completely submissive to God's will and his instructions. Therefore, he brought the victory entirely. At I, the training wheels are coming off, so to speak, um, and God's assistance is still present, just not in, in wondrous ways as before. Verse 2. Then you will do to I and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except you will take its spoil and its cattle as booty for yourselves. Set an ambush for the city behind it. God defeated Jericho. Therefore, the spoils were consecrated to God. Now Israel will defeat I, and the spoils will be set apart for Israel. Now, it's interesting here that God is only giving... Uh, partial instructions to Joshua regarding the strategy of the battle uh, and that Joshua is to fill in the blanks. God says two things. Take all the people of war with you and set an ambush for the city behind or west of it. Uh, The word here for behind is similar or or, or the same to the word for the west of it. So just two things. Uh, And and Joshua fills in the blanks, which he can because he's a brilliant strategist. Okay, so the next um, five verses, one, two, three, four, five, six verses, uh, verses three through eight are about Joshua's strategy, right? So he's, he is talking about his strategy. Um, in the verses after that, nine through 17, we see how the strategy succeeds. 18 through 29, we see how the tables are turned. Uh, and then 30 to 35, the blessing and curse on the twin mountains, on uh, Gerizim and Ebal. Okay, so going into Joshua's strategy, starting in verse 3. So Joshua and all the people of war arose to go up to Ai. Joshua selected 30,000 men, valiant warriors, and sent them at night. Unlike the previous battle uh, with Ai, the unsuccessful battle against Ai, Joshua did not... Uh, participate. Uh, or, or, I'm sorry, when Joshua didn't participate. He didn't participate before. Here we see that Joshua not only participates, uh, but he spends the night with his soldiers. And then later on in the chapter, we see that he positions himself in the, uh, uh, amongst the men who are fleeing from Ai, which is a position that would likely have the most casualties if a confrontation occurs. So he's placing himself very squarely in the midst of battle, which is very different from what happened before against I. Um, perhaps he was negligent before. Perhaps he feels bad and, and decides, oh, I really should be amongst my people. I shouldn't be just watching and just giving an order and having it be taken care of. Um, so so that, that's, that's a good change in him and his leadership style. Verse 4. He commanded them, saying, Look, you are going to ambush the city from behind it. Don't go too far from the city. 
but all of you be ready. Note here that this is an ambush of the city itself and not its fighting force. Okay, Ai's warriors had left the city or were going to leave the city entirely in pursuit of Israel's army, as we'll see. And so the city is captured, uh, presumably before any warrior of Ai is, is even touched or killed, uh, which is quite different from battles previous. Verse 5, Then I and all the troops with me will approach the city. Then it will be when they come out against us like the first time that we will flee before them. Again, we see here that Joshua is right there with them in the, in the thick of it. Verse 6, So they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city, for they will think they are fleeing before us like the first time while we are fleeing before them. Here we begin to see how Joshua is counting on the hubris of I that will ultimately lead to their defeat, uh, which is uh, quite brilliant. Verse 7, You will rise up from the ambush and take possession of the city, for Adonai your God will give it into your hand. Verse 8, Now when, all, now when you have seized the city, you will set the city on fire. According to the word of Adonai you must do, see that you do as I have ordered you. Do what God instructs. Listen to me. Um, he will deliver the enemy into our hands, uh, but we must do what he says. All right, moving into the strategy succeeding. So this is the actual fight, starting in verse 9. So Joshua sent them off, and they went to the ambush site, taking position between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai, or behind Ai. Uh, but Joshua spent that night among the people. So Joshua rose up early in the morning and mustered the people. He and the elders of Israel marched before the people of Ai. All the people of war were, uh, with him went up, advanced, and came in front of the city. They camped to the north of Ai with a valley between him and Ai. But he had taken about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai, to the west of the city. So they stationed the people, the main army that was to the north of the city, and its rear guard to the west of the city. Then Joshua walked that night in the midst of the valley. So it came to pass, when the king of Ai saw this, the men of the city hurried and rose up, rose up early and went out to meet Israel in battle. Here we see Joshua had it right. He had it correct that this would happen. He and all his people at the appointed place facing the Arabah. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. Again, it was, it was arrogant. So Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled by the way of the wilderness. Then all the people who were in Ai uh, were summoned to pursue them. So they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. So they left the city open as they chased after Israel. So note here in verse 17, not only the men of Ai but Bethel as well. This is uh, important here in a minute when I'm going to talk about something. Okay, so here we the strategy succeeds. Perfect. It was it was brilliant, just as Joshua had had laid it out. Uh, so he knows people well, uh, probably because he knows uh, God so well. So we see in uh, eighteen verses eighteen through twenty nine, the tables turn. Right here's where. Here's where all of this is kind of culminating. Verse 18. Then Adonai said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward I, for I will give it into your hand. 
So Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. Uh, this is kind of reminiscent of the battle against the Amalekites in Exodus, where uh, Israel succeeded if Moses held up the staff, uh, but if he didn't, uh, then then the Amalekites were su- uh, succeeded. Um, and we see in verse 26 of this chapter is when Joshua finally puts the javelin down, whether that means that he just had it up the whole time fighting or he was actually holding it up. Um, I think that there's there may be some debate on that, but but still there, there, there is that is a picture of something that the weapon of war is being held up uh, and and that action uh, in Joshua's hands is what can determine victory or defeat. Um, uh, let's see, there was something else there. Maybe not. Um, no. Okay, moving on. Verse 19. As soon as he stretched out his hand, the ambush arose quickly uh, from their place, ran and entered the city and captured it and immediately set the city on fire. I remember what it was. So, verse 18 Adonai is speaking to Joshua. After Joshua, after Adonai gave Joshua limited instruction, Joshua then fleshed out the details very brilliantly. Then we see him execute on it, and it's working very well. And then I think as, as an affirmation, um, as, a, as a reward for this, God is saying to Joshua, all right, stretch out the javelin in your hand toward I, and I will give it into your hand. Like, okay, good job. Good job. I will help. Um, and I will help take care of this for you. All right. Verse 20. Now the men of Ai looked back and saw, behold, the smoke of the city rising up to the sky. They had no place to flee this way or that, since the people who had been fleeing to the wilderness turned back upon the pursuers. The the tables turning here shows how God uh, God's hand is working, not openly, but behind the scenes. So Achan's sin resulted in God's wrath and Israel's initial defeat. Israel's initial defeat gave I a false impression of Israel as cowards and thus a false sense of confidence. I's false sense of confidence was so great that they left their city vulnerable and attracted the fighting force of Bethel, a neighboring city. So not one, but two cities' armies were defeated and one city destroyed. Therefore, Achan's sin and Israel's subsequent national repentance led to a greater victory than would have happened initially. So, God's wonders here were less open, but no less effective than at Jericho, and perhaps even more so. My sin, your sin, our sins while disappointing and frustrating and a setback, and rightfully so, are always opportunities for God to assist us in achieving greater victory. Like Israel's initial defeat at Ai, even the effects of our sins can be used by God to ultimately defeat our enemies. When you fall on your face in defeat, yeah, that was a mistake. Don't do that again. But God says to you, do not be afraid or dismayed. Snap out of your self-deprecation. Snap out of your disappointment with yourself. God is not done with you yet because he keeps his promises. And there are things he's doing in secret that you couldn't possibly see or know. Recall back to Jericho. Recall back to how 
the nations of, 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 of Canaan were melted by what they heard and that Israel came and it was much easier for them because of all that God had been doing behind the scenes. So, dust yourself off, learn from your mistake, fight smarter, and gain a greater victory. Trust God. Even in the midst of your own failing, God can use that to your advantage and ultimately to his glory. And that's exactly what he wants to do. So obey him in how to fight, how to walk through the valley of this life. And when you don't obey him, repent and get back into the fight. Okay? Verse 21. When Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city rose up, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. 22. The others also came out of the city against them, so they were surrounded by Israel, some on this side and some on that side. They struck them down until not one survivor or fugitive was left. I was undoubtedly uh, melted here. (laughs) Their, Their fight had gone out of them, I would think, at the sight of smoke from their city, right? They were instantly regretful of underestimating Israel and Israel's God. And I imagine that it was probably very easy for Israel to strike them down at this point. Uh, They were confused, dumbfounded, in disbelief, um, and just paying the price for the arrogance and hubris of their king. Verse 23, But they captured the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua. 24, After Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the field in the wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them were fallen by the edge of the sword until they were consumed. All Israel returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. All who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin. There that that verse is again. He did not draw back his hand um, until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Only the cattle and the spoil that city Israel took as their booty according to the word of Adonai, which he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burnt Ai and made it a permanent heap of desolation to this day. Verse 29. Then he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. At sunset, Joshua commanded that they take his carcass down from the tree, cast it at the entrance of the gate of the city, and piled uh, piled over it a great heap of stones, which remains to this day. So again, it was the arrogance of, of the king of Ai that, contributed to Ai's downfall. So one man's sin led to the destruction of his people. Uh, He was being a terrible king, (laughs) to be quite honest, right? And like Achan, he was responsible for the death of his people. Joshua here, I believe, wanted to create uh, an everlasting memorial of two events. One, and not right here, but in these two chapters, seven and eight. One, Achan, when Israel sinned, it was defeated, even against an unformidable foe. So Achan is killed, buried, stones. This is a a, a memorial. The second is the king of Ai. When the sin was cleansed, they won overwhelmingly. Sin and the sin was being cleansed. 
But both of these individuals were people whose sin caused the death of their people. All right, moving on to the blessing and the curse of, uh, on, on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal in 30 through 35. This account placed here is important. After these three battles, we're reminded of the covenant and the covenantal relationship between Adonai and Israel. God is saying here, I have saved you. I have saved you. And perpetually before you are a blessing and a curse. Choose the blessing by obeying my commands. And let's just review what a blessing and a curse are in contrast. A blessing is simply prosper, to increase, fruitfulness. Curse is the opposite, a diminish, a diminishment, a decrease, a barren, barrenness. These two things. It's a spectrum, really, um, when we talk about blessing and curse. If I'm blessed, it doesn't mean that I'm now set for life. I'm a, a, a multimillionaire. I've got everything paid for and... Life's just grand, right? And, and likewise, curse doesn't mean that everything's going to be taken away, stripped away, and it's just going to be horrible, horrible, horrible. No. There are blessings and curses all, uh, all along the, the journey of life. And it's, it's degrees. It's, are you more fruitful? Are you less fruitful? Are you in, experiencing an increase here or a decrease here? Uh, so that, that let's, let's think of it in those terms. Verse 30, then Joshua built an altar to Adonai, God of Israel, on Mount Abel. So we, um, uh, something to note about Ebal and, and Gerizim, which um, I guess I can talk about that now. Let me just read this. I've got a quote here from Samson Raphael Hirsch, a rabbi from the uh, 1800s, talking about Gerizim and Ebal and, and how they compare and contrast. Uh, and this is important. Gerizim and Ebal are two peaks of the Ephraim range of mountains, which still show striking contrast in their appearance. Gerizim, to the south of the valley of Shechem, presents a smiling green slope rising in fruit-covered terraces to its summit. Ebal, on the north side, steep, barren, and bleak, slightly higher than Gerizim. The two mountains lying next to each other form accordingly a most telling, instructive picture of blessing and curse. They both rise on one and the same soil. Both are watered by one and the same fall of rain and dew. The same air breathes over both of them. The same pollen wafts over both of them. And yet Ebal remains in barren bleakness while Gerizim is clad to its summit in embellishment of vegetation. In the same way, blessing and curse are not conditional on external circumstances, but on our, our own inner receptivity to the one or the other, on our behavior towards that which is to bring blessing. For ancient Israel, the blessings and curses were located at particular mountaintops. For us, Many of our mountains are metaphoric, and so we can ask, how are blessings and curses dependent on our own inner receptivity for the one or the other, on our behavior towards that which is, bringing, which is to bring blessing? 
So back to verse 30. Joshua built an altar to Adonai, God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Now this was commanded, but I think it's a picture here. So if Ebal is the place that is, that is desolate, is rocky, it has no vegetation, we could say that even in the midst of a curse, we should worship God. Joshua and Israel could now see how God works through it all. They saw an open miracle, a wondrous open miracle at Jericho. And then they could reflect back and see the hidden miracle, the hidden yet wondrous miracle of the defeat of Ai and, and the men of Bethel. So here they're seeing it uh, in full view. Verse 31, As Moses, a servant of Adonai, had commanded B'nai Yisrael, as written in the scroll of the Torah of Moses, this is uh, about Mount Ebal in Deuteronomy 27, an altar of uncut stones on which no man had wielded any iron tool. They offered on it burnt offerings to Adonai and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There on the stones he wrote a copy of the Torah of Moses, which he had written in the presence of B'nai Yisrael. Then all Israel, with their elders and officials and their judges, were standing on both sides of the ark, facing the Levitical Kohanim, carrying the ark of the covenant of Adonai, the outsider as well as the native-born. Half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of Adonai, had commanded before, in order to bless the people of Israel. In order to bless the people of Israel, this, is, this I think, is a unique uh, little uh, uh, inclusion here. And I want to read um, uh, an explanation of this uh, from uh, Sforno, uh, basically saying that, that both the blessing and the curse are to bless the people of Israel. So here's what he says. And this is, a, this is his commentary on Deuteronomy 27, uh, verse 15 where this command to do this reading of the blessing and the curses is found. The true significance uh, of a curse is explained here. When the Jews crossed the Jordan, they became responsible for each other's transgressions. Remember we talked about um, national responsibility for sin in the previous chapter. So when the Jews crossed the Jordan, they became responsible for each other's transgressions, including sins committed in absolute secrecy, like Achan's sin. When the people answered amen to the curses, they were in effect agreeing to banishment by the community if they were guilty of violating the commandments subsumed in these curses. Uh, Consequently, the evildoers would no longer be considered a part of the nation Israel, and the community would not incur punishments because of their actions. Thus, the curses absolve the righteous of their collective responsibility for the transgressors. Conversely, the blessings reaffirmed the ties between the righteous and the community. Perhaps it is for this reason that the passage dealing with the recitation of the blessings and curses is not written in its proper place, which, according to Rashi, would have been in chapter 4. From Achan's sin and its bitter consequences, an entirely different understanding of the curses emerges. After Achan was removed from the community, Israel was no longer besmirched on his account and handily conquered I. What became clear through the sharp relief between the initial defeat and final victory against I was the importance 
of a guiltless community. Thus, the curses uttered on Mount Ebal, which segregated the evildoers from the community, were in truth the greatest blessings to the Jewish people. There is a verse earlier, and I didn't write this down. Uh, I'm not going to be able to find it here quickly. Uh, but it it refers to the the warriors as the people. Um, and because of the context of it being close to the concept of war, it is translated as as uh, as men of war, soldiers of war, whatever. But I think what the uh, what the writer here is trying to to display is that they were united. They were a people. They weren't just the men of war. They were a people. They were united. Um, they were now a guiltless community, as uh, Sforno describes here, um, which is really really cool insight, I think. Okay, last two, last two verses. <clears throat> Then afterward, he read all the words of the Torah, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the Torah. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, including the women and the little ones and the outsiders walking among them. (sighs) So I want to talk a little bit about I and, and Betel. Um, we we read about I and Betel in uh, uh, in Genesis, uh, Genesis twelve, um, twelve and verse eight. And I'll just read it here. Um, from there, he this is Abram before God changed his name. Abram moved to the mountain to the east of Betel and erected his tent uh, with Betel to the west and I to the east. There he built an altar to Adonai and called on the name. Of Adonai. Abram, situated between I, which is the word for ruin, and Bethel, which is translated the house of God, built an altar to God and called on his name. Now, Abram is moving south, so Bethel is on his right, the spiritual, and I is on his left, the physical. On this particular journey, Abram was a certain distance between the two, but between them he was, right? I believe our life is spent on the path between I and Bethel, between ruin and the house of God. And here at Bethel, or at uh, uh, Gerizim and Ebal, we read of the blessing and the curse. I set before you a blessing and the curse. Choose life, choose the blessing. And we're also on this on this continuous journey between ruin and the house of God. So I'll leave you with some questions. <clears throat> Which way are you going? Toward blessing or toward curse? How close are you to one or the other? Are you choosing blessing through your obedience to God? Are you forgiving or unforgiving? Are you prideful? humble? Are you critical or kind? Are you angry or patient? Are you fearful or trusting? Are you greedy or generous? Are you filling your head with nonsense or with truth? Are you moving towards the darkness or towards the light?
Well, thank you all for watching this week. I hope this has blessed you, and I pray that you are all blessed as God continues to make us into the people he wants us to be. Shalom.